0: Welcome to the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Wintrust. Proud legacy partner of the Chicago Cubs, and exclusive home of Cubs captain. Open online today at Wintrust.com slash Cubs Weekly. As a reminder, we're available on all podcast platforms, so be sure to rate and subscribe. I'm Chris Emma, alongside my colleagues Tony Andraki and Tim Stebbins. Guys, we it sounds like we are all addicted to Immaculate Grid. I, and I think it goes beyond just this group to, to group text, to different text messages that we have with different friends. I'm hooked on it. I, I really enjoyed reading at marqueesportsnetwork.com. Our own Andy Martinez wrote inside the Cubs clubhouse about how those players are kind of addicted to Immaculate Grid, too. And uh, they have a better depth of in terms of the, where a guy has been throughout the course of their career, where their teammates have been. It's quite a way to wake up, at least for me, every day. It's I it's I like it with my coffee, right? It's the first thing I do in the morning now. How have you guys been kind of going about your Immaculate Gridding?
1: Well, I think what's great about the Cubs' perspective is, like, or any of the players, you could put yourself. So, like, Mike Talkman, Andy talked to him about it. I thought that was great because he's played for, like, six different teams now. So he can fulfill a lot of different areas and also he's a low rarity score as well I mean he's probably one percent or or lower on a lot of those so like if you're one of those guys that's great if you're a guy like Trey Mancini's been around for a bit even though he hasn't been on a ton of teams he can think about oh what teammate could I have here or like David Ross has been on a bunch of different teams had a bunch of different teammates and he can think of like a lot of like the the rarity score type of guy so I think that's cool um the fun part for me is just like thinking back like the nostalgia aspect of it right like I love all of that it's really cool But it's it's hard. Like we were talking before about different ways to like cheat. One of the ways that like I go through it is I'll like type. So like today was Wednesday was uh, the raise, and I was like I can't think of raise players. Like this is tough. How do I do like raise a's? And then. my cousin was like, don't just think of Rays, think of it like Devil Rays. And I was like, oh, that actually helps. So I was able to get uh, like Fred McGriff for uh, Rays and Blue Jays. But then I went to like, I typed in, I think it was like 99 or 2001 Tampa Bay Devil Rays roster on Baseball Reference. And then I'll go through and I'll look at a guy and I'm like, I bet that guy played for the A's, and then I'll guess. So it's I feel like it's half cheating. So like I don't know <laughs> if it's full cheating or not, but I'll look at a roster to get an idea, and then I'll guess guys and see. So like today at least I was like immaculate with like a less than 100 rarity score. So I'm happy at that, but a lot of these, I, I never even finished them, I or I am not Immaculate for sure.
0: I'm not proud of how competitive I'm getting with Immaculate Grid, but I have found myself cheating. You know, you can do it on your phone, and if something doesn't go your way, Roger Clemens is not a Hall of Famer. That light bulb kind of went off when I got that wrong last week, and I know he's not a Hall of Famer. We all know he's not a Hall of Famer, but when you're going to that grid, you kind of blank out on it. So jump on the computer, you got a fresh grid. Um, Yeah, I'm getting hooked on it, and Tim, we were talking off air and throwing out just a couple different teams, and Tim, within seconds, was bang, bang, Wade Niley, bang. It's fun, right? You sounds like you're pretty hooked on it, too.
2: Yeah, uh, I I like to text Andy as soon as I have it done just to see who had the better uh, rarity score. And oftentimes Andy not only has it finished already, but he'll beat me uh, pretty handily. So <laughs> I need to Andy start. wakes up at like five a.m. or whenever it's like first posted. I'm sure. Oh yeah, they're they're doing it like a- Andy pulled out. He texted me one the other day. Mark Leiter Senior. For one of them, and I'm like, ah, okay. I, I know Andy wrote a story about Mark Leiter Jr. and his splitter. And like, I wonder if I've read back in that there, maybe there was a mention to Mark Leiter Sr. that helped him months later in his research. Like, oh, yeah, his dad played for these teams. Because when I saw that on Andy's grill, I was like, man, like, how did yeah. you get that one?
0: Yeah, it's, I, uh, you know, I, I got the group text with several different baseball dorks who we get competitive with it. My dad, it was an early riser. He's up at like 5 in the morning. He'll text me his grid like hours before I wake up. I had a buddy last night, as a matter of fact, text me at like 1130. I had been asleep, and he already had his grid done like the second it came out. Um, Wait, it
1: comes out the night before? I didn't know that. It
0: comes out at midnight, I think 11 Eastern, or oh, 11 okay. uh, Central, uh, midnight Eastern. So uh, you can get the group text going. I have a friend who's not even into baseball, but she has a mutual friend uh, who's very into baseball, and she's like putting us on the spot every day, like who got the better score. And uh, It's it's funny the way these things work. I, I dropped my best rarity score last week. It was a 49, which I'm proud of, but oh. it was also Cubs and White Sox involved, so I can... Oh kind of go deep into the well and find some of these that anybody's got a score they want to brag about before we move on
1: i think like in the 70s is my lowest rarity score that i've gotten. at this point i'm happy if i just get all nine guys so or all nine boxes like I, the rarity score i'm proud of and i think today what was mine today uh I pulled up yeah i gotta figure out the rarity score for today but i was just, i'm just happy if i get all nine answers and i have and like i'm able
2: to actually accomplish it
0: Tim, what's your best rarity score?
2: I I couldn't tell you. I'm with Tony. Where if I don't, I'm just looking to finish it. And I was always, as, as I was saying off air, if I make a mistake, I have to go into a different browser, start it all over, <laughs> just to make sure I finish it, and then I can see what my score was. But then at that point, it's just like you're just trying to finish it after messing up, and yeah. you're throwing the most common players in. So, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a cheater, I guess, too. I know one way that Andy
1: has been and he just gave me this tip earlier this week that he's helped out is he just thinks of Marquee Sports Network analysts. So he thinks of our colleagues. Uh Ryan Dempster's played for five different teams Cliff Floyd's played for a bunch, you know, Cam Mabin, Dexter Fowler, like some of these guys, Sean Marshall, have played for multiple teams. Or then he, like, thinks about their teammates or thinks about whoever else based off that. Carlos Pena's has played for a bunch of teams. So, like, think about anybody that we've worked with or, you know, on-air analysts and stuff here. And so he goes that route, and I think that's really beneficial if, like, again, like Cliff Floyd's played for a bunch of different teams. Like, you can choose him for a lot of different categories.
0: All right, who's your twin A? Because I got sidetracked this morning, somehow got caught up working instead of doing my grin. I didn't get to the twin A's. So what do we got here?
1: I got Bartolo Colon. Oh, gosh. Yeah.
0: And see, he's like an automatic Edwin Jackson. I mean, he's yeah. played for, what, 15 or 16 different teams. Octavio so.
1: Dotel has played for, like, 15 teams. It's yeah. another
0: good one. Nelson Cruz is up yeah. there as well. If you know, like, your middle reliever careers, too, like a guy like a Brad Hand or a Brad Boxberger, like, you got some versatility. That's how you get the rarity scores, so... All right, I'm going to go back home. I'm going to do Bartolo Cologne, and I'm going to celebrate my cheating immaculate grid. So uh, moving on, uh, the Cubs on Tuesday night with quite the outburst. Down 3-0, the offense was kind of sputtering. 17 unanswered runs, made it a football score. 17-3 final over the Nats. It felt like they really needed that one, guys.
1: Yeah, it really did. I mean, just, like, first of all, I was kind of surprised – Every time I would look up, right, I'd be like, okay, he's scoring. He scored and I'm scoring in my book. And then I'm like, wait, oh wow, it's twelve to three. Oh my god, seventeen to three. Like I was surprised almost at like how quickly this all happened. And by the way, it was a twenty run output and it was like a two hour and fifty minute game. Like it was a quick moving game. The Cubs were going up there and hitting line drive after line drive. They only had, I think, three extra base hits total in the game. So it was just like an impressive offensive display. They scored eight runs in the eighth inning. Uh, or sorry, in the seventh thing, whatever it was, eight runs with like without an extra base hit at all. So like they were they were drawing walks. There weren't really bad miscues or anything by the by the Nationals in the field. It was just the Cubs hitting line drives everywhere, finding a lot of green grass, a uh, bunch of base hits with runners in scoring position. It was an impressive showing for sure, and it was cool. I think Jameson Tyon said it best in a lot of ways. One, he said he's never seen anything quite like that. But two, he said it's a good lesson in the starting pitchers to realize like hey, even if you start out slow, Cubs are obviously losing 3-0 in that game, keep your team in the game because look at what this offense can do. And, like, the offense is is scuffling. They're a little up and down at times. But, like, this is what they can put together if things really uh, come to fruition the way that they want it to. So I think for the starters it was a good reminder for this Cubs team that, like, okay, you're off to a tough start. Keep your team in the game and then see what you can do. This offense might be able to get into a bullpen and might be able to put – I mean, they scored 14 runs between two innings. Like, that's nuts.
0: Yeah, coming off that game Sunday where you, you wanted that series finale against the Red Sox, Steele isn't quite himself. You go out there Monday, opener against the Nats, and it gets away from you. You get a little rally late, but it's not enough. They really needed that one. It, it, Tim, what were your kind of takeaways from that game? And do you think this could be the, the catalyst for something more here?
2: um I'm not to be a total contrarian and just doing this to be like yeah i have a different take i think tyone is one of my biggest takeaways because we know how much he struggled this year and and you're down 3-0 early and you know as a fan if you're sitting there it could make you i guess you, you might look at that and be like man like what's going to happen from here on out the rest of the game and to his credit i mean he kept in it from there like he got into the sixth inning and he pitched well and that really opened the door for them to make that comeback and we've seen them do that this year, I feel like. Like, sixth inning, kind of, a, I think of that Pirates series at Wrigley. Yeah. Uh, they, they, had, they had a big rally in the middle innings there. And that was kind of what I was thinking about yesterday. It's like when he he kept it to three early, it's like, okay, if you can keep it here, like, I don't think they're going to get shut out, obviously. And and to their credit, not only did they come back, but they really uh, opened the floodgates. I don't think I expected that necessarily. And the offense definitely is the biggest takeaway, I think. But I don't want to discredit Tyon doing what he did, and, you know, we, we, he's been pitching better lately. We know that, too, so maybe it shouldn't have been, like, the biggest surprise, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think it's an important field give for this team, too. When you think about everything that's on the line here, we're in mid-July looking ahead to that August 1 trade deadline, and there's been so much talk. The narrative around this team is buy versus sell. And, look, these guys are professionals. They've been through this. They understand the way that this works. But, of course, it gets to you a little bit, right? I think that's only human nature to understand – you might not have Marcus Stroman there in a couple weeks if you, not, if you don't get hot. Cody Bellinger, uh, Drew Smiley, Kyle Hendricks, one of the longest you know, the longest tenure player on this team. I, you're looking at the potential of great change and really kind of different last couple months of the year. If this team doesn't get hot, it's only one win, right? But I think it does stick with you a little bit as a club when you do have that kind of feel-good win. And you hope when you look at the rest of the stretch that it can be that kind of jump start for something bigger.
1: Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head with like the human component of this. I think it could be big. Again, we're recording this before Wednesday's game. We'll see how the series finale against the Nationals plays out. The time you're listening to this you might have more information than like we're talking about right now. But the human component of it was made it an important win, I think, more than the score aspect. And David Ross said it really well as well. It's like everybody's going home feeling good tonight. Like Tim just brought up. Jamison Tyone going home feeling really good. The bullpen shut everybody out. Even Adbert gave up, you know, walked a guy, gave up a couple singles, but like nobody came around to score. So everybody that played in that game yesterday, Tuesday, feels good. They go home feeling better about themselves. They wake up Wednesday feeling better about themselves. And like they can just breathe easier. A lot of these guys, like they obviously care about the stats. They care about the win column. They care about all that stuff. After a game like this, your confidence is through the roof. Every single individual guy had a good reason to be confident after the game on Tuesday night. And I think that if something carries over, it's at least the confidence. Like, they may go out, they may you know only score two runs, maybe they end up getting shut out, whatever it may be. The confidence, though, is... And a very important component and it cannot be measured in baseball and if you're going to go on a run you need to get some confidence going what better way than to have a game like this where like we said every single player has a lot of things that they can point to in that game and be like yeah that was really good like miles masturboni his first career three hit game made an awesome double play as well he was a uh a late start because christopher morel was a late scratch but like masturboni to get out there and, and have a bunch of those uh type of at bats miguel amaya who's kind of played sparingly like Rookie catcher getting a bunch of those. Nico, after like almost seemingly being like over for July, has three hits and two innings. Like A lot of these things help this team. And because, like you said, that human component, that is the, the one thing that can carry them over.
0: Yeah. And Tim, I like your point about Jamison Tyone as well. Because if you turn that game off down 3 nothing and said, this one's over, yeah. and you came back a couple hours later and you see 17 3 final, you notice the offensive outburst, of course. But Tyone is a guy who struggled so much during the course of the early part of this year, goes out there that last start before the break and shoves in New York. Eight one-hit innings, uh, shutout ball. He was fantastic. This is his first start back from that. He did struggle early. He got behind 3 nothing. There was a chance it could have been a lot more. That thing could have really snowballed on him. Heard Tommy Hadovy talking about the adjustment for Tyone is within the game. Now, it's about understanding what are hitters doing to you and how can you attack them, making those adjustments from the game plan initially to really attack hitters differently. That's one of the biggest differences for Tyone. In addition to locating that fastball and the curveball, really getting things to stick where he wants it, but I thought that was a really important step for him to build off that last start in the Bronx and showcasing what he can do. This is a guy on a four-year deal, He's been, obviously, the weak link of this rotation so far. The ERA is still 6.05, but you've seen kind of what he can be for this group.
1: Yeah, for sure. And and, uh, like you you said, too, if he can get back to the pitcher that they thought he was going to be, and then add in, Drew Smiley's hit a rough patch, but like Hendrick, Stroman, Steele, we know what those guys are capable of. If you have four really good starters, again, as, as you're talking about getting on a run, like the offense will come and go. That's what baseball is, especially in 2023. The runs come because you have good starting pitching every single night or at least most nights. That's how you go on. That's how you win four or five. That's how you win eight of ten. And that's what the Cubs need to do to get back into this. So, yeah, Tyone's development, I agree with both of you guys, is like a very, very important thing. And to go 11 days in between starts, he obviously had a little bit of rust in Tuesday night's game. He is not one to ever make any excuses. But, yeah, to, to settle in after giving up three runs in the first couple innings, to do all – like there are a lot of positive developments just from the last couple of starts and I think he's due for a little bit better luck overall too and maybe the Cubs are due for a little bit better luck as a team but like luck luck is what you make it all that kind of stuff but like that rotation is going to need to continue to be the strength if the Cubs are going to get where they want to go climb back
2: into this NL Central race you you want some stats let's hear it yeah stats this is uh what if I said no uh you got me. I don't, I don't know what I would say. Uh, anyway, anyway <laughs> that, this is the first two-start stretch for him, Ty, on this season where he's pitched at least five innings and given up three or fewer earned runs. So I think the signs are telling you that like, he has been pitching better and then some of these numbers perhaps are also matching it. Like, mm-hmm. you, as you're saying, there, there were outings. There's been plenty of outings this year where uh, he has struggled, but then you mix in bad luck and then the final line is, is what it has been. But uh, the last two, I mean, the Yankees start was just pure dominance. Yeah. In, you know, against the team he, he played against or he played for for a couple of years there, coming out of the break, like I think the long layoff that's kind of what impresses me the most because that rust thing can be real. And uh, you're, what was what was his work between starts? Like live DPs only, right?
1: He threw a same game against Wisdom and Mastroboni on Friday, yeah. Right, and so that's but, some yeah. work,
2: but it's it's totally different than getting in and facing any major league team. So uh, I think all around, like, there maybe he's he's building some momentum here. And as we're saying, like, the rotation's been solid to good all year and he's been that Guy who you're looking to get on track and two in a row here? I mean, that's that's a big thing to look for in the second half, I would say.
0: Yeah, and speaking of getting on track, it was a feel good for uh, three guys last night. The three core players you're really counting on with this and within this lineup Nico Horner, Ian Happ, and Seiya Suzuki. Nine for 15 with a home run that's Seiya Blast and six RBI is among the 17 run outbursts for this team. Those three guys combined in slash since returning from London in late June 189, 284, 254. The power's dropped off for those guys. The production's just not been there. Three guys who you count on in the middle of this order, at the top of the order, and believe that they can be the catalyst for this team. And when you look to this offense sputtering, you kind of look there. Do you think those guys have turned the corner here? Is that the kind of game that can get them all back on track?
1: Yes, it's definitely the kind of game that can get them all back on track. Have they turned the corner? I, I can't say for sure. And obviously, again, we'll see how Wednesday's game plays out. But to me, I think... We've seen all the signs from them that make sense as to yes they are turning a corner like Ian Happ had a homer in Monday night's game he's been really good from the right side after struggling on that from that side as a switch hitter the last couple of years so that's definitely beneficial but like hitting with more power is big for him and for Seiya Suzuki who had homered like one time I think from like May 23rd until Tuesday night so like that's important as well but any of those three guys have the potential to. Almost carry an offense when they get hot, and Patrick Wisdom as well, who like also is you know on the way to getting hot right now. But like they have the potential to not only carry an offense, but like when your top three guys, when your core guys, when your super important players, uh, all-star caliber type of players are not performing, they're filling the top three spots or two through four spots in the lineup, like they most likely will do against right-handed right-handed pitchers. It's hard to score runs, and it's hard to consistently score runs. You can't always rely on six through nine to, to help you out. You need your stars, you need your studs, and again to go back to like if you get on a run, the Cubs are not going to get on a run if Nico, Hap, and Suzuki are continuing that post like an OPS well under 500, an average well under 200. Like they're not going to get on a run without that. So they need these guys. I think it was a huge confidence builder for a lot of reasons, and like we said like the human component, these guys are all coming to the ballpark feeling just so much better about where they've been with the last couple of games and particularly with Tuesday night's game.
0: Tim, with Hap and Suzuki in particular, two guys who have the power in the production there, but also seem to be kind of constantly battling between strike zone discipline and also looking for that right pitch. Do you see those guys kind of finding their form again in terms of the power? And can they be the run producers in the middle of this order?
2: Well, I think, like, I think with Ian Happ, I'd, I'd kind of turn back to last year. I feel like as he turned this corner offensively and really since the last two calendar years almost now, like, I think we've seen. I don't want to say a drop in power, but maybe less slug and more, you know, getting on base. He's hitting more uh, with the average and such. Right. But like that, that's like kind of a sacrifice. I think that's a good trade-off, right? Maybe you're not as three true outcomes as uh, perhaps he once was. Right. Uh, But him and Suzuki specifically, that's an interesting question. It's like, they do have great eyes. They do have great command of the strike zone, but there's a balance to that where how often do you want to be, you know, looking first pitch and, and, swinging right away swinging out of your shoes and how often like with you want to you want to lean on your skill set and like that's that's a big strength of them right like they have keen eyes of the strike zone uh and if they're getting on base then you're getting you're just passing the baton i think either can work right like you're going up there maybe you have a shorter at bat but you're getting on base with a, a single right away double or you're getting on base and you're passing it to the next guy like it, it's a keen it, it's a tough balance i guess and i don't think they should stray from their strengths necessarily um and I think in that sense, like you have to do what works to get kind of back on track.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of been covered a lot with Sia in particular about some of these pitches on the outer edge of the zone. It seems like he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt with these calls, and it's a constant battle of assessment in terms of what he's looking to find. But if he can be, like grow from this, it seems like he's trying to become more aggressive, which is a good step for him. If he can become that guy you trust in the cleanup spot and is hitting – They want him to be a 25 to 30 home run type guy in this league, and I think he can do it, but it's just—it's about piecing together what we talked about is that that strike zone recognition while also taking advantage of what's pitched to you there. That that could be a huge development for the last two months of the season. This guy's second year of a five-year deal. If he can be that big-time run producer for this team, this offense is going to have a lot more nights, maybe not 17 runs, but a lot more crooked numbers.
1: Yeah, 100%. And they've been, like you were talking about the adjustments and stuff, one of the big adjustments they want is him to be a little bit more quiet in the box. So, like, he has a lot of movement to his swing and to just his motion, his mechanics. They want him to be just a bit more quiet so you know his head isn't moving quite as much he probably is able to to see the ball the hand-eye coordination is a little bit there and then also I mean he's been hitting the ball hard but on the ground for most of it and so Tuesday night's game was important because it was line drives to all fields, but then the home run like that was big again and so yeah we've seen we've seen in stretches from say be a star level player the guy that was worthy of the big contract the guy that you're like oh 25 30 homers is definitely a possibility for this guy if he puts it all together he's absolutely a three four hitter in this league on this team but he needs to be more consistent and this could be a stretch of like you know another hot streak he's been just very streaky throughout his career if he finds that consistency he gets to be that player that he wants to be and the Cubs know that and that's what they're working for and Saya knows that and that's what he's working towards and again this just could be scratching the surface it could be the start if he does go on a run like that over the next couple of months like I mean yeah what what kind of dividends does that pay for this team like that's massive especially when you get a guy like Dansby Swanson back in the next week or two.
2: I think, I think the biggest thing is just when – I think David Ross talked about it, right? Like, the guys are going to have down stretches at the plate in a season. That's just baseball. I think the biggest thing with the last few weeks here is you don't – I don't think you necessarily expect your, your guys, your top three, all to have it go through it at once. Like, yeah. Like, I don't know if you you can ever really predict that. So, in that sense, it's kind of just been a, a tough situation where you're going to have these periods, but to have them all at once is uh, – you're going to see offensively what's kind of been going on, where there's been some ups and downs, some uneven stretches. So in that sense, it's like we know what their track records are. I think that because you have these dips and highs and lows in the season, like you expect them to get back on track, and then since it's all happening at once, in theory, like they're going to get out of this. And as you are talking about Swanson comes back, and Bellinger's been good, like if they can get back on track, get back to who they've been, like then your lineup is looking one through five formidable as, as we kind of looked into the season what it could be like.
0: The month of July closes with a key stretch. We're going to cover that. But first, a word from our sponsor. We know you love Chicago. You devour the pizza, admire Chicago's skyline, and cheer on Chicago's sports teams, especially the Cubs. If you wanted to live in a more boring place, you'd live in St. Louis. Why not bank with Chicago's bank, too? Upgrade your wallet with an exclusive Wintrust Cubs debit card, which you can get when you open a Wintrust Cubs checking account. Show your Cubs pride and open an account at
1: Wintrust.com slash Cubs. Member FDIC, equal housing lender.
0: Welcome back to the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Wintrust. I'm Chris Emma alongside Tony Andraki, Tim Stebbins. It's a big stretch here to end the month of July. You got one last game as we record on Wednesday before uh, that rubber match with the Nationals. Then four games with the Cardinals at Wrigley Field. You go two on the south side with the White Sox and four more down in St. Louis. 11 games leads you off to July 30th right before that August first trade deadline These are games the Cubs should be winning and if they want to get back into contention if they want to be a buyer before the deadline you got to get hot right now
1: you do and you've probably heard a lot by now anybody listening is that like the strength of schedule Cubs have the easiest strength of schedule not only in the division but in the national League in the second half yeah like that is all well and good it's only a few percentage points better than like the Reds and the Brewers. But the simple fact of the matter is like this stretch, this 11 games, this two weeks here, this is where the Cubs need to figure it out. And it's not just because of that August 1st deadline. It's because if you're a team that has sights set on a division title on getting the playoffs, you have to beat the teams you're supposed to beat. That is the Nationals. That is the Cardinals. That is the White Sox, the way these teams have been playing this year. So yeah, the Cardinals are hot. They're going to be coming in hot. Uh, the White Sox have obviously been up and down. The Nationals have played the Cubs really well, but like, if they want to make any sort of run, if the players in this group, which they've all said, they want to stick together, they don't want this team to sell, they don't want Judge front office to get rid of guys, they want to stick around, they love this group, then they have to go out and prove it over these next couple of weeks. And, th- and this stretch is important just because of that. Like It's like the put, put your money where your mouth is type of thing. Like the The Cubs players need to go out and perform well against the teams that they should beat and I don't you know I'm not going to sit here and say like oh they have to go like 10 and 2 or whatever it is you know over the next few games like it's not just that it's just you have to win you have to gain ground you have to get closer to 500 or get over 500 during this stretch because then you have harder teams then you have series against the reds then you have some other Games and stuff going on, and like we do the strength of schedule. Well, it's going to look quite a bit different after this this stretch. After they're done playing that Cardinals, and they start playing the Reds on the thirty first. From there, the Cubs might have the hardest schedule in the division the rest of the way because this this part of the schedule is so soft. And yes, they absolutely need to take advantage. So you don't want to set
0: a preferred record for these next eleven games, Tim. do you want to set a uh, an expectation. there's eleven games here in this stretch before July thirtieth. How many of them do you think they need to win? If if you don't have a true answer, give us ballpark. But like. If you're Jed Hoyer, what are you looking for in this stretch?
2: So I'm really bad at math. Let me try to do some <laughs> math there. Okay, so it's 11 games. They're entering Wednesday six under. I mean, thank thanks for not you wanting to do this. Yeah. And I'll no I'll, I'll, I'll put the expectations square on their shoulders. I mean, I think 500 minimum is a threshold that you got to get to 500 at some point. I know the I know the story of the Braves in 2021, like. Then you get to over 500 until what, August, right? But I think that's a, that's a hard comparison to make. But for your 44 and 50, you go 8 and 3, you're game under 500 at that point. Like, then you're starting to actually. You, the 500 threshold, they haven't been over 500 since when? Like, May? They haven't been at 500? Sometime in May, yeah. It starts with getting to 500. Like, we can talk about, you know, if they can get on a run. We know there's talent here. We know what they could do if they start all clicking. But. I I'm just not in a position. I don't think I'm not ready to start saying like what 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 could they do to win the division? 500 should be the first step, and then yeah. you go from there. And then as you're saying though, like this stretch is important for sure, and it's it's teams that are, are manageable on your schedule. But you got to start by getting at least to 500 because then you're going to start seeing teams like uh, the Mets. I know the Mets have struggled this year uh, in the, in Atlanta on your schedule. So it starts with getting just back to that that even line. And then you have to carry that momentum into uh, the tougher portion of the schedule come August.
0: Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, we've talked so much about this team with the potential of, oh, you know, run differentials there, best run differential in the NL center, all this and that. You got to get to 500 at least if you want to be saying we're a contender, we're ready to make a run here. And and we've been talking about this potential for this team and what, you know, the good more than the bad more often this season, but, you're right. It has been since what early May when they had been at that 500 mark. It's time to make that run. This is the opportunity now with these 11 games. After that, by the way, you go on and you face the Reds, who have been right there at the top of the division. Your opportunity is right there before you. And you mentioned the Braves in 21. Dansby Swanson was on that team. John Gomes was on a Nats team in 2019 that really kind of founded in August and pushed to becoming a World Series team throughout the course of that season. Like you got a winning experience on this group. You got a lot of guys who have been there and. Believe in the opportunity here, but it's now or never. I mean, Marcus Strowman's set to become a free agent or like likely declined his player option at the end of this year, become a free agent. Cody Bellinger is going to get paid this offseason. Like, you understand where Jed Hoyer's coming from, both in his belief with this team, but also understanding the long term of what you got to do with some of these big picture decisions here. Um, so, as you do look to this now and, and you do that buy versus sell calculus, feels like every game it seems to change with this team. How do you form these decisions? I'll start with you on this one, Tim. How do you kind of go about this if you're in Jed Hoyer's position?
2: I think you just have to take it down to the wire. And I'll say, that since you mentioned Stroman and Bellinger, I'll use them as examples. I don't think there's going to be a, diff, a huge difference in other teams' interest in those guys if that's the route you wind up taking and training them. I don't think there's going to be a huge difference on July 25th and July 31st because of the caliber of players they are and what they've done this season. Like, if you if you wait if you wait until this stretch we're talking about you get through that see where you are come that red series like and, and if you're saying at that point like it looks like our path is selling people are still gonna be interested in those two guys because of their pedigrees and what they're doing um, I, I just wouldn't be in a rush to trade them I know this team has been up and down all season really and when they start getting runs we know that they, they had that great run going to London we're on the doorstep of 500 and since then they've been a couple of games under Um but I would give them at least up until the deadline to see if what can you do until then, and then at that point it's decision time. And if you're not where you want to be as a buyer position necessarily, then you have some tough decisions to make. Yeah, and I, I think you know across the street in the Cubs
1: front office, uh, in the clubhouse, coaching staff, all of that, there's not a single person that wants to sell. And I think especially in Judge's front office, they're going to look for every reason to not sell, and, and maybe not necessarily buy, or maybe there's a way to you know thread the needle and do some sort of soft sell, sell high on a couple of guys while also helping other areas, or helping yourself for the long term, or for next year, or whatever it is. I, I, they're gonna look for every possible reason to not. Right? And because they don't want to do that again. They don't, after the last couple of years, that's not the route that any of them wanted to take when they started this year. And then even this year, they're looking for every reason. I mean, I think Jed is cheering harder than any Cubs fan right now, is like at every win, at every base hit, at every shutout inning that the pitching staff throws out there. And, um, you know, I think you mentioned Bellinger and Stroman. Like, those are the two guys to me. Obviously, that's the most important. I mean, if, if the Cubs do sell, those are arguably the two of the best players on the market. Obviously, Shohei, we're not sure quite you know what to do but you talk about left-handed bat and a starting pitcher like show his both but like among the other ones possibly available stroman and bellinger would be the top of the list or very close to the top of the list beyond that i don't know if the cubs trading guys end up getting stuff that matters a whole lot in the long run like just what we've seen the last few trade deadlines there haven't been a ton of like Monumental prospects traded. P. Kerr Armstrong for Javi Baez was great.
2: that was a shock too that that, that it, even happened. It was. And, it,
1: and that went down to the wire and stuff. And then the Mets changed their calculus the very next year and didn't want to give up any top prospects because of that. So teams are just not getting rid of the guys that are close to big league ready, guys that are known prospects. PCA had played nine games in professional baseball before that trade. Like, they're not giving up these these like oh, you know top hundred prospects all the time. Like for Shohei, they will. Maybe for Bellinger and Stroman, they will. But not for like a, maybe Julian Merriweather or Michael Fulmer, or some of these other ancillary type players. So I I think to me like the Cubs have to figure that out. And it's one of the things they are thinking of is like they have a ton of depth. They have a ton of prospects who are getting to the upper levels of the minor leagues. Like do they want to go out and trade for a guy who? Is going to be another outfielder in a super crowded Iowa outfield as it is. Like, do they want to go do that or would they rather let it ride? Because there's so much emphasis on the trade deadline. After the trade deadline, there's exactly two months left of play. Like, we've seen stretches from this team. If they put it all together, the Brewers and Reds, you know, we both know like what their weaknesses are, their strengths are as a team it's very possible that the Cubs stand pat, don't do anything, and then still end up winning the division, right? Like there's two months left of baseball being played. So yeah, I mean ultimately going back to like what I said first, like I think Jed will take it down on the wire and I think they're gonna look for every possible reason to not sell. Whether that means buy or not, I don't know, but I think they're gonna look to not sell. And I think both Bellinger and Stroman also make sense here long term, right? Like they they're guys that love the Cubs, love being here, and the team loves them.
0: Yeah, and it's also obviously important to factor in what are you getting in a, in a deal, right? I mean, if you're looking, say, the Astros are looking at Bellinger and Stroman, I mean, can you get Geiner Diaz out of them? Can you get some stud prospects out of them? It, there's the calculus there. We saw it a year ago with Wilson Contreras where it seemed obvious that he was going to be traded until suddenly he wasn't, and we were all sitting there surprised. But uh, Jed Hoyer holds that price point high, and he especially should now because – We've talked about this team, the ups and downs, the opportunity that's still there in these last two months. Like you said, it this is a team that can make that can make that run, can get hot here in this stretch to come, these eleven games, uh, or any point in August and September, and suddenly you're right back in the middle of this race. But this isn't the rebuild anymore. Like this isn't the early stages in twenty one where it was so obvious. Okay, you got to break up this core, you got to make these moves. Like this is a team that's built to win. They haven't lived up to it yet, but there's still an opportunity there. Uh, If you're Jed Hoyer, like you said, Tony, it's a good point. Like, you you look at the opportunity that's still on the table for this team and believe if you don't win it this year, you can go back out there next year and prove in free agency, uh, find different ways and avenues through trades and get back there to being a better team in 24. But, yeah, this isn't like the infancy of a rebuild where you're saying you have to make these moves, you have to get rid of these guys. Like, that price absolutely has to be right to deal somebody like Bellinger and Stroman. Now, Stroman in particular, I mean, this is a guy, obviously, that player option's there. He's 32 years old. He's not really had that true lucrative long-term deal. You understand he absolutely should be hitting the open market next offseason and it's his contractual right to find you know to find that big contract that he deserves. But he said it. He says he loves everything about being with the Cubs. Uh, he wants to be within this organization here whether it's through a trade after trade to come in the next few weeks or if he's in the open market this offseason what are your thoughts on Marcus Stroman from both of you guys in terms of, does he seem like somebody that you want to give that five-year, however many million-dollar deal to next to this offseason?
1: Hey, that's a really tough question to answer. I think it's always scary whenever, you know, because he'd probably be at least $100 million if you're talking five years. He was already making $25 million or so a year on this current deal. I think the answer is yes, obviously with a caveat, with an asterisk. I don't know exactly what the price point would be, but, if there's anybody that's going to age well, it's a guy like Stroman who doesn't just rely on pure stuff. He always says that everything he throws moves. He is, you know, it's a lifestyle for him, like, to, to get his body and his mind and his arm right uh, every single season. And also from Stroman's end, like, why would you not want to entertain this? Like you said, his comments, of course, he would want to be here. He, he's raved ever since he's gotten here about the fan base, about Wrigley Field, about the energy that they provide this team, whether it's in April, whether it's in September, whatever it is. He loves that, of course. And he's played in New York. He's played in Toronto. He's played with some good fan bases, some good markets. But... At the same time, this is the best version of Marcus Stroman we've seen, and I don't think that's a coincidence throughout his career. I think it's because of Tommy Haasie and uh, you know Daniel Moskis and the rest of the Cubs pitching infrastructure. I think it's Jan Gomes and I think it's Tucker Barnhart who he had a great rapport with before. Miguel Amaya also is a, a young catcher on the rise. Like the Cubs have gotten something out of Stroman that he has not been able to quite get out of himself or any other team has been as well. So like it's a perfect pairing in a lot of different ways. And yeah, like if you're going to expect a guy to go out and perform well at 35, at 36. Of the 32, 33-year-old pitchers out there, Stroman's a guy that I would feel most confident in, or one of the guys I would feel most confident in giving them money because of all these things, because he can exist at a 91, 92 mile an hour. He doesn't need his arm to be thrown 98 in order to be successful. So yeah, I mean, I think there's, and I mean, he, he does, he thrives on this energy. He thrives on the the Wrigley field, the fan base, and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a perfect pairing in my mind, long term, short term, everything.
0: Tim, we heard from Marcus Stroman after a start on Saturday. He said he doesn't anticipate a long term deal coming before the trade deadline. But if you're in the position of this front office now, what are your thoughts in terms of Stroman's long term futures? Is somebody you're willing to give that big contract to?
2: Uh, yes, I'd say for one. I mean, look, there's a couple, there's a lot of factors between him and Bellinger that are at play here, and I think I'll start here is. Stroman can't cannot get the qualifying offer this offseason. Bellinger can. So what that means is you're weighing whether you want to keep him or not. He gets the open market. Even if you make a pursue of him, so maybe someone else signs him and then you lose him for nothing. Right. And if you trade him, I can see speaking from that perspective, you trade him. And if you, even if you are interested in bringing him back after that, you trade him and you get compensation up front. If you get him back, then you win on all fronts. But if he happens to sign somewhere else, then at least you didn't lose him for nothing, in a sense. But uh, that's also extremely rare, right? Like, the,
1: yeah, the Yankees traded Chapman here to Chicago and then re-signed him. The Cubs traded Jason Hamill to the you know Oakland A's and then re-signed him. Other than that, like, go back and look in the last ten, fifteen, twenty years, like that that doesn't happen very often at all. Where, you, especially if a guy like Stroman's stature, where you trade him or you trade him away. Two months later, you, or three months later, whatever, in the offseason, you re-signed him. Like, that's not the easiest path to do, for sure.
2: I agree, and that's why I just think any conversation about that, like I think I, I take him, at, I, I believe what he's saying. like I don't discount what he's saying. If I were to get traded, yes, I would still be interested in coming back. I don't question that at all, but as you're saying, how likely is that? Like John Lester, I feel like, was in a similar boat when Boston traded him to Oakland. We know how that story ended yeah. and where he wound up. Um, I think I would invest in him from all the reasons you're saying about longevity, but also look, like, if you trade him, and he doesn't come back here, as we're saying, that's very unforeseen, does not happen a lot. If you trade him, that only to me means, unless you're just going to let the kids have the rotation spots, You we know they have a lot of good arms in AAA, that are not proven in the big league level yet, what that means is if he signs somewhere else, you're going to have to go out and get someone, if you're truly looking to compete next year, and not just give a couple rotation spots to younger guys. And maybe that's something that those those guys in AAA, Wicks, Brown, you know, when Westneski's up here, we've seen Killian, like maybe it's something where they do want to see those guys and they and they are impressive and then they, they run with those opportunities. But I think if you're forecasting next season, Marcus Stroman, there's more certainty with him than a prospect. And if he's not here, then you're having to look at the open market. And who knows, like, I think some of the names out there off the top of my head, like Aaron Nola from the Phillies, Julio Arias from the Dodgers, like, How much are their markets going to be like how how much are they going to be in line for that's why this is a huge like question mark to me and where where i stand overall is just you've got good players you you're saying they're as you say they're comfortable here it's a great fit with the defense up the middle that should be someone you want to keep but there is a calculus at play where if you don't if you keep him you don't make the playoffs and he becomes a free agent we know the risk that you could run and losing him for nothing
0: Yeah, I I really like your point there, especially if if you do let Marcus Stroman go, you just need to find another Marcus Stroman out there. Like you listed off the names, there's some good names out there, but this is a guy who's in house, who loves Chicago, who loves being part of this organization. He's such a tone setter for this team. Like every fifth day, it's Stro Day, and you know what you're getting. And the the crowd's feeding off, and the the players are feeding off him. Like you need that guy. You have to have him around. This front office has been very strong and calculated in terms of decisions with players who are, you know, you're really forecasting those years out in the, in the contract. And they've been a little conservative with it, which they've made the right call on a lot of these guys they've let go. This is a guy I'm betting on. I know he's 32 years old. This is like a breakthrough season for him in a lot of ways. I think he's got several more really good years left. And, you said it, Tony, that the infrastructure that's there within this organization, that relationship with Tommy Honovey, with his catchers, everything he has at Wrigley Field, it's set up for him to be successful for the long term. I'm making that move. I'm locking him in at some point if I'm in charge of the Cubs, and you have to have that guy leading the charge here for the next several years. Um, so we're going to switch gears now. We're going to look ahead next week. It's the Wintrust Crosstown Cup as the Cubs and White Sox Renew their city series, two games on the south side. You come back later on, you played two games at Wrigley Field. It's the first games between these two Chicago teams. Let's look back on some of our favorite memories. And, Tim, as you look back on this series, what are your favorite memories of this, of this rivalry?
2: Uh, it's funny. Like, when we first posed this ahead of this episode, I was thinking, like, man, I can't really think of any. And then you do a little bit of research. And it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> um, I remember this one, 2010, Sunday Night Baseball, Ted Lilly versus Gavin Floyd. Two guys, Gavin Floyd and the White Sox takes a no-hitter through six and two-thirds. Ted Lilly takes one into the ninth inning. And at Wrigley Field, and who's, who gets the first the hit to lead off the ninth to end the no-hit bid? It's former Cub Juan Pierre. So it's like this dueling no-hit bids that the, the guy on the Cub side, Ted Lilly, goes longer. And then it ends off a former cup. I think that was really interesting. I kind of forgot about that one.
0: You you stole mine, actually. I'm going to ride with that, too, because I don't know if you remember what happened before the game, but – the Chicago Blackhawks, had just a couple days before, won their first of three Stanley Cup championships. And down on the field, you got the Cubs, the White Sox, and the Blackhawks gathered together around the Stanley Cup for a group photo. It's an icon- iconic photo in Chicago sports and uh, a really cool moment for for really this city. And I obviously, it's interesting how the Blackhawks intertwine within this rivalry, but... That was the night of that. As you said, it was a Sunday night baseball game, a national broadcast, and really a cool night for Chicago sports. Tony, what's your favorite Cub Sox moment?
1: It's funny you mentioned that photo because as soon as Tim started talking, I was like, oh, that's a good one. And I was like, wait, was that the day that the Stanley Cup and the Blackhawks were at Wrigley Field? So, like, I mentally was picturing that, and then you said it, and I'm like, one, it was nice to know that, like, my mind and memory was correct in that. (laughs) Congratulations. But that that was a great one, like a good call for sure on your guys' part. Um... For me, I go back to 08 and like a really good Cubs team in the middle of it. Uh Derek Lee and Ramirez go back to back, I think in the seventh inning to tie the game and then Ramirez walks it off in the bottom of the ninth at Wrigley Field. I remember being at that game with my mom and sisters like as I was home in between college. But like that was a really impactful win in a lot of ways for a team that ended up, you know, going on to having like the best record in the National League. And and Lee and Ramirez like the the two guys at the corners, like were incredible. And to have your studs step up in you know, a crosstown series that, like, yeah, it's it is important to like the fan base. It's important, obviously, to to either team to get wins, but to win it the way that they did to, in comeback fashion with your studs you know, going deep for Ramirez to have home runs and back-to-back at-bats for that. And then just any walk-off at Wrigley, I feel like, is special. And then when you can do it against your crosstown rivals. Like, and the, the, I remember being in the stands and, like, all the White Sox fans were super happy for the vast majority of the game, and then they're not very happy. And Cubs fans for the last, you know, 45 minutes or whatever are really happy and then, like, ecstatic after it ends. And, like, that was just very impactful. I remember watching that Aramis hit in the walk-off. Like, it, it was just a cool, cool moment.
0: Yeah, and there have been such ebbs and flows within the, this rivalry. And the two teams, it seems like one one's up, the other one's down, and vice versa. But you think about the personalities and, and the, the the stories behind this. Guys, you know, Sammy Sosa versus Frank Thomas in the infancy of this rivalry. You go to, like, Canerico versus Lee and Soriano, those teams, uh, you know, years later. And uh, Lou versus Ozzie, and just so much per, A.J.
1: versus Michael Barrett. Of course, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah.
0: It's like there's so much that's gone into this rivalry man, that heyday you could get if you get the Cubs and White Sox both on top. Think about like a late summer series with first place on the line for each of the centrals. Like There's there's a lot more excitement that, that, that really could be upon us in this Wintrust Crosstown Cup. Uh, it should be a really interesting series as the Cubs head down to the south side because we talked about it. There's a lot on the line for this team. Uh, chance to make a run here. Chance to really make this interesting. That'll do it for this edition of the Cubs Weekly Podcast presented by Wintrust. Don't forget to download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and check us out in video form on Marquee Sports Network if you haven't been on YouTube.